Hey, you're listening to TBB Talks, the podcast hosted by The British Blacklist, where we bring you conversations with creative black folk from the UK and wider diaspora. We'll be talking to up and comings, headline popping, and the legends across screen, stage, literature, and sound. And we hope to shed some insight into their lives, the careers they chose, how they stay motivated, and more importantly, how they keep sane being black in the arts and entertainment world. My name is Anthony Andrews from We Are Parable, and on behalf of the British Blacklist, I am here as part of TBB Talks. And I'm very excited um, as we have an amazing guest um, who has graced the TV screens, the cinema screens, the stage for over three decades. Um, I'm delighted to welcome Mr. Wendell Pierce to TVB Talks. Wendell, how are you? I'm doing great, Anthony. How are you doing? I'm very uh, well, very well. It's great to be on the British Blacklist, man. I love it. Well, it's great to have you. I mean, uh, we'll get into it soon, but I've, I've been a massive fan of your work for, for many years. So, um, yeah, the pleasure is all, all ours to have you here. So, first of all, as we're doing this over Zoom, um, you're in New Orleans, we're in London. We're facing a, look, a global pandemic. How has lockdown been for you? What, what's been the experience of lockdown for you in, in, over the last 16 weeks or so? It's an amazing time. I mean, uh, who would have thought this would even be happening? We speak of epidemics and pandemics. Never thought the world would have to shut down, you know, in a public health crisis and try to find our footing. But, you know, I have always been raised that the most difficult times happen. It is the time where you focus the most and become vigilant about how you're going to live and then search for a way to make things coexist, to keep living. We're fighting to protect our lives and save our lives so that we can live a life. So you don't have to give that up even in pandemic. So uh, I just got off a wonderful call with my family last night where we had a game night, you know, it was on Zoom, it was, but it was wonderful. You know, we were like, hey man, I haven't seen you guys. Let's get together. Let's have a party. And at the same time, we were safe. So live your life. And at the same time, it gives you an opportunity to reset and see what is important to you, what's uh, important to improve, uh, what is important for you to get rid of in your life. It's, uh, it's a good time to reflect on the good, the bad, and uh, the better, and uh, try to change your life that way. I've been reading more than ever expected. Um, I'm spending time, my father's 95 years old, Oh, wow. And so I was in London all last year, uh, which is when you leave a 95-year-old man for a year, you know, at any time, we know his, he's in his golden days and years. And so to come back and have this pandemic, I've seen that as an opportunity to spend this time with my father. So I'm spending this wonderful quality time with my 95-year-old father and as a black man in America. He has lived a life that has given me a lot of perspective now, especially with the pandemic and also the protest movement that's happening. Yeah, most definitely. I think this is certainly a time of reflection. I think it's, um, it's very easy to think about this time as being a bad time. And of course it is, but there is, there is an opportunity for us to reflect, to, to learn about how we want to show up going forward. So yeah, it's, it's really great. To hear. Absolutely. And, and you know, and the blueprint, the blueprint is there. Uh, you know, people always say, well, you know, have we seen this before or whatever? And for a young man like you, yes. You know, of course, it's the first time you've seen a protest movement that has reached this level to have the impact globally that it's having. I mean, Black Lives Matter didn't start yesterday. It started four years ago, right? And so to understand, well, wow, it actually takes that time. We look back on movements like uh, the civil rights movement in the 20th century here. Oh, we think, oh, Martin Luther King. Yeah, man, they came on the scene. You know, they made an impact. But it took years. It started in 55 and he was killed in 68. 
You know, we're talking about 13 year period, but we see all of those famous battles of, uh, the, you know, the March on Selma Bridge and uh, the March on Washington and, you know, the, the boys and girls of the fire hoses in, in Birmingham. We see them now as all of these moments in this great civil rights movement as if they happened all in a week, but it was over the course of a lot of years. And that's what's happening now. The insight that we have is we have been this vigilant about fighting this ugly cancer of racism every generation of our existence. Don't think this wasn't happening during the slave trade. Don't think this wasn't happening during uh, Jim Crow. Don't think it's not going to happen now and it's going to happen in the future. We have a historic pattern of making sure to be vigilant with our protest until it turns into action. And that's what we're repeating and emulating and doing today. What I'd like to ask you is about, you know, your take on the Black Lives Movement in its current formation and in its iteration at the moment. I mean, are you hopeful that this isn't just another point of history, it's actually going to lead to lasting change? Are you hopeful about that, seeing what you're seeing at the moment? Uh, there's two things we have to pay attention to, Anthony. Mm -hmm. One, a protest movement has two parts. The protest, which captures the zeitgeist, the imagination, the, the consciousness of the community. You shake the trees and you have everyone's attention. The other part is where the rubber meets the road, where we then put it into policy. We make demands. We have an opportunity to make the changes that we're going to make and to put it into law. Laws change people's behavior. And then as artists, we can change people's hearts and minds as we reflect on who we are, where we're going, because that's the forum of art. That's the role of art. What thoughts are to the individual, where they consider and reflect about who they are. Art is for the community to reflect on who they are and decide what the values are and then to act on those values. That's the role of art, to change the hearts and minds and the consciousness of the community. The policy changes behavior. You may still hate me, but now I have put you in a place of prohibition that you cannot act on those, that hate. I will leave it to the artist to maybe change your heart. But right now, with this protest movement, I'm going to take advantage of it and say, we need these reforms now. Mm -hmm. This is not new, Anthony. Mm -hmm. As young people, you feel this. It's new. It's new for you. Mm -hmm. But don't throw away the blueprints that have been given to you in the past. I think of the UK right now. Do you know about the Brixton riots of the 40, 40 years ago? Mm -hmm. That was Black Lives Matter. Yeah. Right? So look at that and say, what changes were made or what changes haven't been made? So now you have the leverage to say, Brixton blew up 40 years ago and we're still dealing with this. Now it has to change, not tomorrow, now. We have the consciousness of the world. We will make these demands now to all of those allies, as we call them. Yeah. It's great. We throw the statue in the Bristol River. It's wonderful. Statue never called me nigga. Right, right. right? Mm. So it may feel good. Mm. That's great. It's a great protest movement. You have it out there. But now what laws are we going to change? How are we going to change parliament? Who are you going to put on the back benches mm. to make sure things change? Who's going to put on your local councils to make sure things change? How are we going to change policing here? How are we going to change to make sure that people have access to capital to buy homes, that people aren't moved out of Brixton and has become gentrified, I know. Sure. But those people who were there 40 years ago, why aren't they participating in the gentrification yeah. that is happening now, right? 
and how systematically banks make sure that you, Anthony, don't get a loan, but you know, your Irish mate does, right? So that's the opportunity that we have here, hand in hand. Protests to keep the consciousness. The other hand is change policy to make sure that is enacted prohibition. And remember that we have the blueprint from protest movements going all the way back for generations and centuries from now. You live in the UK, look at your history and go, you know, this is happening now for us, but we have the historical legacy of it. And one quick last thing is always know that this is a chronic disease. And like all chronic diseases, it's not about trying to get to the cure. It's about attacking the disease right now, like cancer. It was in remission, and now it is metastasizing, and it's malignant, and it's going through our societal body. We have to treat it now, immediate, before it kills us, and put it back into remission. Then we can reflect on the hope that one day we may cure the disease, the hope that maybe this will end. But as barbarians at the gate, there's those who do not have our best interests at heart that want you to reflect on, are we ever going to change racism? Are we, where's the hope, Anthony? Because I just want to know. So I'll be nice to your black ass for that one year you say <laughs> before the hope comes. And then when the hope comes, I'll go right back to my behavior before. So don't look for the hope. Look for the immediacy of changing it now. Okay, I'm gonna get off my soapbox now. Oh, I love that. I, love, I, I could I could hear that all day long. I think it's a really important message that you know it's it's about the sustainable change that we're that we're trying to create. And um, you know, you mentioned the fact that you know you you obviously were in London for a lot for a long time for Death of a Salesman, which I was very fortunate to catch on New Year's Eve of uh, oh, fantastic in the crowd, and it was it was an incredible experience. But, you know, you're obviously here rehearsing, performing uh, in London. And I wanted to ask you about the, the kind of parallels and the differences that you may have seen about how the UK and the US actually um, approach race, racism. Could you talk a little bit about that and what you witnessed during your time here and how that, related to, how that relates to your time in the States? Two things about racism here in the States. Very individual. One-on-one, you encounter racist people and racist incidents. And of course, it's structural racism and institutionalized racism. We see that and we're fighting that too. In Britain, as in the States, but more in Britain, the difference is it's tied to class even more and xenophobia. So that's when you get just the racist, insulting way that they are treating the Windrush generation, is it called? Yeah. People who were asked to come here from the Caribbean you know, 70 years ago, and they lived their lives, and then all of a sudden today, now you're saying, and their golden years, you're not a member of the UK. And then it becomes class also. Class is uh, used to promote racism even more in the UK. So that's the difference. But, you know, the impact is the same, you know, institutionalized racism. The thing that I love about the UK is um, the lack of guns. Right. Uh, America is a violent country. And so what happens is it, it exacerbates a problem that already exists when you add guns to it. And uh, I felt a freedom and a liberalism, a freedom of movement that I seldom feel here in the States. I don't want to scare people off and say, don't come. Because that's, that's, I always think about that, man. If I was listening to me and I'm in Britain, I'd be like, the last thing I want to do is go to the States, man. 
Yeah, it's a, it's a similar thing because I, I mean, I love New York. I, you know, bed You know, I, I love New York. And, yes. You know, me and my wife are having conversations about whether we're going to go back to America, you know, over the next year or so. Come. The, the, the most dangerous thing right now is the way we're treating this pandemic. Sure. Let's hope that we change the man who's in the Oval Office. So then there's going to be a national plan. Everyone needs to know what happens, and we marshal those resources that we have to really combat this. The United States can be like Denmark right now, but they have politicized the pandemic. So, you know, you got everybody walking around with no mask. There's no social distancing. They're acting as if the virus isn't happening and the numbers are a hoax, right? Yeah. And so once we end that, we'll kind of attack the disease the way it should be attacked. We'll rejoin the world community when it comes to a public health emergency. And uh, that's on us. It'll say a lot about America if we don't stop this gentleman in office now who's destroying it. Yes. You say, man, it is deeper and uglier than we thought. We got a lot of work to do, even more work to do. But you should come. But the UK, I just loved, there's a, a progressiveness about it. In the midst of, I guess, the classism was so strong for so many centuries that once you break away from it, yeah. and there's still work to be done in the UK, when you break away from it, what I love is a liberalism and a progressiveness especially in London, that I just love. Uh, it, it was freeing. I didn't realize I was so tense. I didn't realize my shoulders were up here. And I realized that that's such an American thing, you know, our exacerbation of violence. Conflict resolution is so poorly done in America. Right. And it's because of what we're taught from day one. Me, you know, when, when the shit hits the fan, it's life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, my rights. Where in other places like Canada, when I was working there, the first thing that's drilled into them is peace, order, and the common good, mm. right? Canada and America are literally, I mean, it's the same place. We're in North America. So I was like, how can just a few miles change the attitude? And it's what you are socialized to believe. In America, it's me, right? Me first. Where are my rights? And in Canada, it's the common good. Sure. That's best for everyone. And so that was the thing I experienced in the UK that I loved the most. And then. Sunday nights at the Hackney Pub, man. Oh, wow. Joy. What, what Hackney Pub did you go to? It's called, I thought it was called the Hackney Pub. <laughs> okay. Right? It's a jazz set on Sunday nights that I would love to go to. It was, I'm a jazz head, man, you know. But it was, it was cool, man. Yeah, London's got a great jazz scene, so I'm sure you, yeah. you, you yeah. had it. And Ronnie Scott's, I was there every night, so it was cool. <laughs> good stuff, good stuff. So um, let's talk about Clemency, um, the film that's coming out on July the 17th in the UK. I watched the film a few days ago and just thought it was an incredible piece of work. I mean, it's operating on so many different levels. And I was hoping um, for people who haven't seen the film yet, what can you tell us about your role and further about the, the role, about the story of Clemency? Clemency is a very unique, profoundly powerful, independent film that shows you a perspective of executions in America from a point of view people seldom think about, from those who administer the the executions. What is unlikely even further is the fact that the warden who does it is a black woman. Mm. Not uncommon in the United States. There were at least five in the Midwest that Alfred Wood's character is based on, black women who run prisons. Uh, in the midst of an industrialized prison complex that has been perpetuated here in America uh, for the benefit of corporations yeah. uh, and to the detriment of the black community, the war on drugs was all about mass incarceration that puts you in prison and what most people don't realize around the world is it's uh, modern day slavery because corporations use that workforce that is imprisoned 
for cheap labor. Yes. Uh, and, and, and so imprisoned workforce labor to the benefit of their bottom line. We see the perspective of an execution from the warden's point of view and how executions ultimately damage our humanity of who we are. And we see that it breaks her down. It destroys her from within. And it's so infectious that it destroys our marriage. I am married to her. We're coming to the age of retirement. I want some sort of peace and solace. And the destructive nature of executing people in prison here in America is destroying her life and destroying our marriage as we're trying to hold it together. I wanted to be a part of that because uh, it was so well written, so powerful, it's so poignant now, especially as we fight these ideas that are destroying our community, that it destroys black lives specifically. And I wanted to be a part of that. And that's what the movie is about. And uh, from a, a purely uh, human level, it is uh, very powerful and real, you realize that um, how barbaric it is and uh, how murderous it is and how virulently violent the system can be. And I want to be a part of that story. Yeah, definitely. I think, you know, not to give too much away, but in the first sort of five to seven minutes of the film, I mean, myself and my wife sat down to watch it and we were just completely taken aback by just, just the, the mechanics of how an execution works. And you're very yes. much in that space. And I, you know, I felt physically sick after watching how it all came together. Yeah. So I think Even before the story begins, just that first begins, scene is just so yeah. impactful. Yeah. Uh, it's, uh, uh, I encourage everyone to see it because uh, that will change hearts and minds. Most definitely. I think what, what I loved about your character were the scenes that you had with Alfred Woodard and, and just and just had the chemistry that you two had on screen. I think what I loved about it was so, you know, not so much about what was said, it's about what wasn't said. And I really mm -hmm. wanted to find out about how you worked with Alfred to really create that chemistry, create that kind of sense of the audience questioning what might have happened in your marriage to get you to that point. Well, acting is about creating the world so strong that it induces the behaviors. The closer... Uh, it's the closest thing to uh, psychology, you know, to being a psychologist. Uh, we are students of human behavior. So Alfrey and I spent a lot of time on our history. Mm. What brought us together? What we love about each other? What's the thing that keeps us in here in its most difficult moments? What's the thing that we're holding on to? And why does it fall apart? Uh, and how can it fall apart? It would, uh, how fragile it has become. Mm. So we were constantly talking about that to create a history that we have that then reads on the film with that chemistry. You know, the other thing that I wanted is just to see black love, right? Even in its most challenging time, it's a depiction of love because ultimately if there wasn't love, they would just give up easily. Yeah. Cool. I don't want to be here. I'm out. And so you want to always be a part of something that explores what people so seldom see, you know, especially in Hollywood. I think of this movie, I can't think of the name now. Uh, it's part of the Alien trilogy. Uh, Idris. Oh, Prometheus. Yes. Yeah, Prometheus, yes. Yeah. yeah. Idris Alba and uh, Charlize Theron, two of the most beautiful people on earth. They're actually having a love affair. And we are so caught up in race in Hollywood, they never kissed. 
<laughs> you know, we, we, you, we never saw them make love. <laughs> and it's because she was white and he was black. I mean, that's the only reason, right? They're so afraid of black love. And so even in the midst of it falling apart, black love is black love. And I wanted to depict that too. But working with Alfrey was really about creating a history so strong that it induces behavior. So I'd love to talk about the theme of, I guess, being seen that comes out throughout the film. Again, not to give too much away, but there's, there, there is a scene where you read um, the opening chapter from one of my favorite books, Invisible yes. Man by Ralph Ellison. I'd love if you could tell me a little bit about that and how that theme really runs throughout the film. Because I think that theme of invisibility kind of works on a number of different levels within this film. So could you talk to us a little bit about that? First of all, I was so excited to read the opening of Invisible Man by Ralph Ellison, because for me too, it's one of my favorite novels, one of the great masterpieces of the 20th century, and it had never been done on film. Mm. So uh, I knew I was, for that, it was uh, uh, an honor. The invisibility that is uh, the metaphor of that novel, uh, the dehumanization of who we are, of what we are, that we are considered nothing, less than, not even our physical presence, our human presence is celebrated at all or recognized, just recognized, hence the title, Invisible Man. And you see that as I read it, it's a reminder of what's happening in this prison complex and what's happening to Aldous's character. Anthony has been reduced to nothing that he, he, he can't, I don't want to give things away. He, no. He's reduced to nothing. He's, his life is of no value. He's reduced. He's reduced in several different ways. I, I'm trying to, that invisibility carries on to Alfrey's character, uh, Bernadine, because she isn't realizing her humanity. Her humanity becomes invisible within the construct of her job, of you just facilitate this death. And that's purely what it is. Take all emotion out of it, become regimented to the point that you have no feelings that ultimately will destroy what your whole value system is. And I am a teacher reading this to a generation of people, mm. of young people, that when you see the scene and I read this, it is a warning that you too will be impacted by these practices that demean you and dehumanize you if we don't change it. And what is so sad about that moment as you see the faces of these young people that I'm reading it to, you realize that this is not only something that has been going on before us that is happening now, but that will destroy the future of who we are as we see the faces of the people who they too will become yeah. invisible of no value, whose lives are of no significance. And it just speaks to the zeitgeist that's happening now, that clarion call of Black Lives Matter. They are not invisible. They are not insignificant. And we're not asking people to come to an understanding. I don't subscribe to, and it's, I, I guess because I'm older, you know, I have more days behind me, Anthony, than ahead of me. I don't have time to teach. Everyone says, oh, well, you know, don't you want to get up? First of all, I don't subscribe to the ignorance that everyone feigns the, the world has. Oh, we didn't know black folks felt like this. We didn't know institutionalized racism existed like this. It wouldn't be able to exist without those with the knowledge to keep its construct. So I 
am cynical enough to believe to talk to my allies about it, you're feigning an ignorance that I find insulting. You see it every day because you would never choose to be in my position if you didn't know about it. Hmm. Of course, Anthony Andrews, I love to be on blacklist. No, you wouldn't. You're on the BBC, motherfucker. (laughs) So don't tell me, oh, you would give up that so you could be on the blacklist, right? Hmm. Right? Because it's reaching an audience that you don't have over there. You know exactly what it is. You, You know exactly why our resources aren't where they should be so we can compete where the BBC is, not to put anything on this platform. I love this platform, not to demean this platform, but to know that there are those those who are competing with you. Make sure. So I don't believe in this famed, oh, I didn't know that was happening to you. Mm. You know, I think about that a lot. And tell me how you feel. Well, motherfucker, you're human, right? Yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> what do you mean you need to know what it feels like when a motherfucker pulls me over and when I reach for my wallet, I might be shot? Yeah. You know that. Now, you can ask about history. Okay, yeah, I know that shit. Tell me historically how it's set up. Oh, okay, I didn't know. Okay, I didn't know that about the prison system. We could deal with some logistics, educate. But don't talk about, I find it insulting. Like, you know, I don't know. Tell me how that makes you feel. Right. Well, if you're human, you know it already. So why this feign? Ignorance. Actually, I think it's a distraction. I don't have time to teach you. I only got 20 more summers left, Anthony. I don't have time to teach you, right? I want to make sure some shit happens. So I got away from the question. But, but that invisibility yeah. uh, is perpetuated with those students. And so that, that metaphor of Invisible Man by Ralph Ellison, a book that all of your viewers and listeners should read right now, especially, Uh, permeates through the film that we dehumanize people until they don't exist and dehumanize people where they don't exist because they are not seen. We literally dehumanize people to the point where we take their life, you know, and that's what clemency is about Mm -hmm. this execution of life. And that's why we don't have the time to educate. Mm -hmm. The first thing I have to do is protect, protect me, protect my community, protect you put laws in to prohibit thou shalt not this, thou shalt not that. Then I'll sit with that ooh again in a fucking pub and then we can talk about, listen mate, you know, when you see me, you think this is, we'll have those discussions later. Right now, I gotta make sure you can't come down to Parliament Square, do your Nazi salute, attack the police, right? And then expect me to feel comfortable about how those police deal with me, you know, so. some people think that's cynical, and I, I accept that. So what would you want audiences to take away from this film? Ladies and gentlemen, this is a very good journalist and interviewer. Um, he just said, now I want you to answer in short sentences. You talk <laughs> a lot, motherfucker. You talk a long time. Excuse my cursing. I was on oh. the wire. Um, <laughs> I want people to take away from this film that executions destroy our humanity, no matter who we are, mm. whether we are the executioner or those who are executed, whether we are family of those who are destroyed by the violence that put the person in prison or the family of the person who did the violence, uh, that it is not something that we all can get away from without having it destroy our humanity. We may think that we are removed, but we are all affected by the barbarism that is execution and that everybody is affected their humanity is affected 
by injustices that are perpetuated in a criminal justice system. Yeah. So if you sit there in Richmond, you cannot think that those protests do not affect you, even though you're in the UK, even though you're in the comfort of the suburbs of London, that what happens, what happens to George Floyd affects you too. And I want people to understand that this injustice of sanctioned uh, murder is destructive to all of our humanity. So I want to talk a little bit about your time in London and more specifically your time performing uh, Willie Loman on uh, stage for Death of a Salesman. You did mention in a few interviews about how it was a dream come true to perform that particular play and perform it in London. Can you talk to us a little bit about that ambition that you had and why was it important to perform it in London? First of all, to perform theatre in London is the pinnacle of any actor's career if he cares about theatre. London is world-renowned for its theater. I came there when I was 16 years old, you know, 40 years ago, uh, and this was my debut. It took, you know, four decades to get there, but it was uh, a dream uh, of mine. Also, to do this role, this is the American Hamlet, and uh, I didn't expect to even get the opportunity to play the role. So I was so happy about the insightful producers and the estate that said, we want to see this interpretation that has Willie Loman, the equivalent of King Lear or Hamlet, be uh, portrayed by uh, African-American. And then I also knew that it would never, the opportunity uh, presented itself in the UK before the United States because the condemnation of the sort of classism and racism and the attack of capitalism that the play is about and the interpretation is about is an indictment of an American aesthetic that probably uh, would not uh, people push back on, you know, I don't want to <laughs> see that now in America. So it would be easier to do it in London. So I really appreciated that. And I knew that the opportunity to do it here would be even rarer. So to do it in London, to create this dream, to do a role that is uh, uh, one of the great roles in the canon of English literature, to do that, and then also to come to London in a historic production, because on this level, while it had been done before in smaller theaters, even here in America, it had never been done on that grand of a scale on the West End. And so I wanted to do that. And also I think about Ira Aldridge, a great African-American actor of the 19th century that came to London to have a career. I think of Paul Robeson, who did it in the 20th century, who didn't have the opportunities to play the roles that he wanted to play until he went to London in the 20th century. And here I was in the 21st century, an African-American actor who would never get a chance to play a role like that here in America until I went to London and got an opportunity to play it there. So that has become the highlight of my career. And to have it happen right before we go into lockdown, it is almost surreal to think that, you know, thank God I got it in. We sit now at a place of, Will we ever return to the live theater? You know, we're trying to figure out if that'll be able to happen. And so to do that was major. And to show you how insightful it was, there are those in America with all the accolades that we've received with the Olivier nominations and myself being nominated. There are those who are blocking it from coming to America. Every other play of some success on the West End that was happening in my same season last year, the... Uh, Lehman Brothers, uh, Company, uh, uh, Betrayal, all transferred from the West End to Broadway. Mm. 
and we are coming to Broadway, not yet. And there was an effort to not have it come to Broadway. I'm not at liberty to say, but there was an effort to make sure it didn't come to Broadway, in my humble opinion. And then also to the point that the New York Times critic who always comes to London and reviews the plays that are a success on the West End to deliver back uh, to the, the readers in, uh, in New York, spoke in October, I can't wait to get to London to see Death of a Salesman, this interpretation, wow. great Sharon Clark, you know, and I want to see Wendell Pierce in it. And this, it's, you know, one of the successes on the, the West End. And by December, he had not come. And I actually wrote the Times and reminded them of Ira Aldrich and Paul Robeson and saying, and this was an African-American editor that I wrote, you know, Dean Baquet, who was over the New York Times. And I said, it's hard for me to believe that the New York Times critic who said he was coming to see this will not come. I'm not asking for soliciting for a great review. I'm asking you to keep up a tradition that has been there. And I'm wondering why he hasn't come. And he may have seen it even your night, Anthony, because it was three days before closing when the review came out and he said, I was remiss for not coming sooner. Wow. See this production. So we got this rave review in the New York Times, which is very important yeah. uh, for any sort of American production three days before we closed in London when we should have gotten a review months and months ahead. Right? And it was by design. You see the very issues that we were bringing up in the interpretation of this play actually playing out behind the scenes. I thought, I think it's actually fascinating. And one day I might be able to speak about it once I get the evidence of it. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Well, we'd love to welcome you back. So um, yeah, please, please do share when you can. Just to close, I would just like to, first of all, thank you very much for this time. It's been incredible speaking to you, but I want to find out Obviously, when, when we do get back to productions and stage, stage productions, what are, you, what are you planning to work on next? What's, what's the next thing once we get out of lockdown? I always try to do a play. I always try to do television and film each year. Right. A play that I hope to do in London. Coming back to the UK, I want to do Richard III by Shakespeare. The second thing is, uh, and this will be in London also, the third season of Jack Ryan. Right, yes. Then I want to find a film like Clemency another independent film that I can fit into the schedule that allows me to get in depth with the work. And there's a couple that I'm working on, would love to see them come to reality, which is a film called Before the Storm, which actually takes place in Louisiana, in New Orleans, prior to and during Katrina, a family drama of this family falling apart. And this other film called Billy, it was inspired by the youngest person to be executed here in America. Another film about execution. He was 14 years old, George Stenney. He was so small that they had to put him on books so that he would reach the electrocution crown in the chair. He was given an ice cream cone as an incentive to confess to murder. And he was 14 years old. He was small. And this movie was a, it's a fictionalized version of a 10-year-old boy named Billy, who by chance gets an, is bullied by a teenage white girl who he sticks with a pen knife. Mm -hmm. And she goes back to her friend, he walks away with his friend, and she bleeds out and dies. And then they search for him. This is 1950s America right. in Mississippi. And they find him. And the question of this film is, do we put a child to death? And that's Billy. 
So the message of what clemency is about is also in this film. What are the value that we live by and what are the values of our lives? Black lives matter. We cannot say that enough. Black lives matter. And anyone who goes against that or claims they, oh, but all lives matter. That's exactly what we're saying. You know that, right? They know that. So don't get sidetracked by that. So those are the things that I look forward to next. Third season of Jack Ryan, which will be, I'm giving away, you get an exclusive here. We'll be shooting in London. Uh, so I'm coming back to London. Uh, I'm looking to do Richard III and hopefully this film, Billy, that I'm producing. Amazing. Well, listen, we look forward to all of your projects. Like I said, we didn't get into Treme and The Wire and all of the great projects that you've been a part of. I've been a massive fan, you know, watching your, your performances. Always incredible. It's such a great presence. So uh, thank you for being a part of TVB Talks and all the best with clemency. And we hope to see you soon back in, back in London. Absolutely. I look forward to coming back to London. Thank all of you who have watched The Wire over the years because The Wire was the canary in the mine. We were a predictor of this police reform that we are calling for now because we saw the moral ambiguities of the police and the destructive nature of the individual in a destructive uh, corporate idea of what policing was about. Yeah. So I tell people all the time when we're fighting for police reform, to see the dysfunction in the police, look at the wire again, because it shows the moral ambiguity that led to a time like this. So it's prophetic to go back to the wire. So thank you for being a fan of that. And to speak on Treme, after the destruction of Katrina, the thing that brought us back was our culture, right? What our music was, what our food is about, right? Even with the violence, and there you see the violence of police misconduct even more in Treme because it was real, people were killed by police here post-Katrina, mm. and it shows the real ugliness of police brutality at its worst in Treme. What brought us back was when we appealed to the best of our humanity, and that's our culture. Culture is the intersection of life and people itself, the literal intersection, mm. how we deal with life itself. And when you celebrate the best of your culture, will bring about the best in your humanity. And that was the prophetic nature of Treme. If The Wire was a novel, Treme was a poem, mm. a cultural document that we will be able to pull out years from now and say, in our darkest hour, how do we respond? And we responded with culture. So it shows the value of that forum of art. So in this dark hour of this protest movement, fight for reform, fight to change policy, fight to change laws, fight to change policing, fight to protect community, but pull out that document about culture. And in that form of culture, celebrate who we are, find the best of our humanity, lift it up, reflect on who we are as a community, speak to our values, and then act on the values. And that will change hearts and minds and well, policy will change behavior. And that's what Treme was about, a cultural document, like a poem that we can use even now as a blueprint in this protest movement, because Black Lives Matter, bro. Black Lives Matter. Well, to finish, Wendell Pierce, thank you so much.